Hello and welcome to Manageable Conversations, the podcast where we speak to leaders across industry sectors. In each episode, we discover what helped them in their career, how they stay sharp, and their tips for managers to get the best from their teams. I'm Farley Thomas, the co-founder of Manageable. We hope this podcast inspires you to be a great leader by learning from others. The idea that you can do a job effectively and have no slack is an illusion. It's an illusion of busyness. It's an illusion that, oh, we're so busy, we're getting stuff done. And what you're not doing is you're not making decisions. That's Bruce Daisley, a writer, consultant, and one of the most influential voices on the intersection of life and work. He was previously the European vice president for Twitter, making him the firm's most senior employee outside of the US. Before that, he was at Google, in charge of YouTube UK. He hosts the top business podcast, Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. And his first book, The Joy of Work, was a Sunday Times number one bestseller. Bruce has since written a book called Fortitude, which unpicks the myth of resilience to unlock the secrets of inner strength. I sat down with Bruce to explore the value of enthusiasm over experience, how to tackle the burnout epidemic, and the need to challenge orthodoxies around building resilience. Bruce, fantastic to have you with us today for this manageable conversation. Thank you so much. appreciate the invitation. Bruce, if I can kick things off with some curiosity about how you would characterize your leadership style. Really, I guess I never expected to be a manager. My instinct throughout my professional career was that I hated injustice. I wanted fairness. And I've got sort of a belief that if managers get out of the way, people can do the job. In fact, I worked somewhere, my first proper job, I worked somewhere and it was chaotic. If anyone remembers the 1970s British sitcom called Forty Towers, it was described in the press as the media equivalent of that. It was chaotic. You know, orders would go missing, the wrong things would go to the wrong people. But everyone there knew 10 ways to fix it. But the management, the leadership was so cut off from that. And they kept inside their doors and they never saw us that it felt like, wow, if we were allowed to run this, we could actually do a really good job. I never lost that sense that actually we could do this job properly if anyone listened to the people doing it. And so that's sort of my sense when it comes to management. It's like a weary annoyance that we're not listening to other voices in the room. Is that what you strove to do at Twitter and YouTube before that? I think when you're doing a job like that, there's two parts. There's the day-to-day, which is like the immense, hectic, intense actions that you're performing. And then there's a sense that, okay, what do I want our ethos? What do I want our culture to be? So I was resolute. I'll give you one illustration. In Google, you are given a budget of the number of people you hire, not a amount of money you spend. Slight anomaly. So that means if you're given 20 people, you can hire 20 former managing directors. You can hire 20 former marketing directors, or you can hire 20 school leavers, graduates. So as a consequence, quite often you've got an organization that's full of people who are trying to give orders and directions and not many people who are there to do the work. When I was at YouTube, I hired loads of kids and not all of them were university graduates, which was very difficult at Google. Google has a really strict set of rules, but I hired a group of kids because I just wanted to get the job done. I didn't want people standing around looking to give orders to someone else. I didn't want someone else navigating status. I just wanted people to get the work done. I'm not going to hire the guy who's used to run a video streaming platform and he's the 
chief executive. I'm going to hire someone who has dazzled me with their intellect and they're really enthusiastic to build a career. Great. You're in. On a day-to-day basis, there's all these complex and nuanced and never-ending array of unprecedented decisions and problems you're facing. And secondly, it was like, okay, if we've got a good culture underpinning this, a fairly diverse culture, but a good culture underpinning this, filled with humor and warmth, and especially with people who are young in their careers, I knew that a lot of them wouldn't necessarily have the perspective to judge it right now. But the objective was really clearly, people will look back and say, this is their best job. That's fantastic, Bruce. And I found out that I think at least four years in a row, CEOs, MDs have voted you as their fantasy hire. And I was curious about what convinced them that you're the fantasy hire. So who knows on that award? But what I will say is that our intention was that every time, that was when I was at Twitter. So every time we had a really clear goal. Every time someone interacted with a Twitter person, it had to be their favorite meeting of the week because we were competing against just incredible platforms like Facebook, Google, and Instagram was coming along. This was really before TikTok, but Snapchat was new kid in town. And so it was really clear. Number one, the people you dealt with had to look back and say, that was my favorite meeting of the week. So how can you do that? Well, number one, how you set people up to go and deliver messages. We gave them freedom to do stuff. The ethos very clearly was, if anything goes wrong, you blame Bruce. Everyone has got the permission, whether it's someone internally or whether it's a customer. If something goes wrong, you say, Bruce told me to do it. That was it. So as a result of that, because it was so fast moving, it meant that people felt free to make decisions knowing that they weren't on the hook for it. So quite often, something new would happen or a presentation would go out that didn't look like it was meant to look. And people say, oh, sorry, Bruce told me to do it. And then I'll be calling to a meeting and people would say, okay, what can we do to help sort this out? But along the way, we tried to give people this stuff that would look completely different to what other people did. We used to have something at Twitter, which the objective was you'd start a presentation with one or two tweets that had happened in the last 24 hours. Something funny that happened. Oh, look, this happened yesterday on Twitter. Normally, they were show-stoppingly funny. We, you know, we set about doing it. And look, how did you do that? We have to systematize a system where someone every day is responsible for creating that. So the goal there was that if you went out and you're at a presentation at the BBC or you're at a presentation at an advertiser or you're a presentation at the Football Association, they might have seen a presentation from Twitter three months ago, but now it's like, oh, this is completely different. It's all new stuff. Actually, that only happened yesterday. Gary Lineker only said that yesterday. Like, wow, this is incredible. Like, these are just tiny little fragments of, I think, culture. Now, look, you can only do this if people have got the space to do it. So if you've got people who are massively overscheduled, too many demands on them, they don't have the capacity to do it, there's unreasonable demands on them, all of this is for nothing. You won't be able to achieve that. But giving people the space to do that was really critical. Our focus very much at Manageable is on equipping managers to lead their teams as well as possible and taking well-being as well as work outcomes, performance in mind and not one at the expense of the other. And typically performance, of course, has trumped well-being in the past. If I were to put you on the spot and think about some tips that you might have for managers today. Normally, the people who report to you know how they can make the job better, but you need to ask them and listen to them. And normally, most work environments have had a moment where someone has said, this isn't working, can we change it? And either a manager has said, no, we've been told we have to do it like that. 
So that's how we're going to do it. Or no, this is the way it's always been. So that's how we're going to do it. So normally the workers want you to listen. In fact, there's some work done by a professor at Bayes University. She looked at who made up the best managers. And they were normally people who'd previously done the job of the people who were reporting to them. And broadly, it's because if you've done a job, you recognize what the challenges of the job there. And it's very strongly reflected in the work of someone called Zainab Tan. Now, Zainab Tan wrote what I think is probably the best book about work that I've read. It's called The Good Job Strategy. And the the thing that might immediately be jarring to your listeners is that the book is ostensibly about the retail. It's about supermarkets. And, you know, you might say to yourself, oh, our job is way more complex than that. But in fact, she got into this by realizing, oh, wow, this seems to be a relationship between firms who give their employees good workplace cultures and firms who are highest growing and most profitable. It's like, okay, that's a real anathema because we so often frequently hear about zero jobs hours or we so frequently hear about retailers like Walmart who pay you know, minimum wage, no health insurance, that we presume that that must be the smart way to do business. And in fact, in her data, that's not remotely the case. If you want to grow quicker, have a more sustainable, more dependable business, then giving your workers some reason to stay and, and enjoy being there is actually more profitable. I'll give you an example. In retail, there's a set of rules that you never see as a customer. One of those rules might be that if a customer comes in and asks where the bread is, do you point and say it's down there aisle seven at the end or do you walk with them? That is a policy decision. So some stores, now you know that, you'll recognize that when you ask, they'll walk you. And some stores, when you ask, they'll point. It's a much better customer experience. But if you haven't got enough workers in the store, it places a real burden on them because all day long, they're just directing traffic. They're just walking people up and down the store. That's a real conscious decision. But the organizations who built enough slack into the system that they could do that, their customers leave happier. Their customers leave with a positive experience. So all of those things have got an application. Quite often, we find ourselves saying yes to customers without a framework of when we say yes. But what it does for your workers, it creates an overwhelming, exhausting, never-ending chain of unpredictable and random events. So look, I love that book, but that book is probably one of the best learnings about how you could try to improve the experience of work for your team. I'm going to read it, Bruce, on your recommendation. One word you used, which is still on my mind, is slack, slack in the system. And I had a couple of thoughts. One was overwhelmingly in agreement. But then the harsh reality of economic conditions, is slack necessary for people to be able to do great things? What's your take on the possibility of businesses embracing this idea of having some slack for people to be a bit more creative or deliver something delightful rather than standard? The truest thing that anyone will ever learn about work strategy or anything is that strategy is what you choose to say no to. And unless you believe that you are operating in a system of scarcity, you don't say no to anything. And so as a result, if you ask any person in the team, one of the best questions to ask someone about culture is to say to them, if we were going to improve things with our culture and things will have improved in two years, what will we have done? And you ask them, people will shower you. They will inundate you with improvements that are broadly will spend less time in meetings. We'll have fewer long email chains. We'll spend less time in nonstop ping pong communication on teams or whatever. They'll tell you that really clearly. But 
Because we don't operate a system of scarcity, the average working day went up by two hours a day before 2020, and then has gone up by an additional 45 minutes a day since the pandemic. Because we don't operate in a system of scarcity, we've created a version of work where we never say no to anything. We never have a situation where we should be saying no. Now, if you said to people, okay, we're going to try to half the amount of time we spend in meetings. That forces a decision of scarcity and it forces you to say no one has the right to put in a meeting with everyone. No one has a right to create a one hour meeting and then put mandatory in block capitals when they create it. As soon as you start saying that, you start recognizing, okay, we're dealing with issues of scarcity. Look, here's why it matters. If you look at when people come up with their best ideas, it's not when their diary has been salami sliced into 15-minute chunks and they're working in the evening while they're eating their evening meal, or they never sit down to talk to colleagues. So everything else is an illusion. The idea that you can do a job effectively and have no slack is an illusion. It's an illusion of busyness. It's an illusion that, oh, we're so busy, we're getting stuff done. And what you're not doing is you're not making decisions. If strategy is what you choose not to do, the best thing I would advise anyone in that situation is to say, okay, have a look at that thing that you're all running around. You've had eight meetings on oh, and it didn't happen. Have a look how many times you've done that this year. Okay, what, you've done it 10 times this year. Okay, could you achieve more? by working out the things that do happen and doing more of them and systematizing them and productizing them and standardizing them. Could you be more successful if you did that, the thing that people are willing to partner with you on or buy from you, rather than running around trying to find some golden egg somewhere? It's at the heart of most of the reasons why people are burnt out. The reason why people are burnt out, they're working best part of three hours longer than they ever worked before, and they feel like they're still not getting their job done. What you say is seems so seductive and straightforward, Bruce, which is that there is this kind of tyranny of busyness and being slammed or salami sliced, as you say it. What do you think is causing this to be the norm? I'm curious, is there some sort of silver bullet apart from people like you talking about it? Look, I think first thing is is having conversations on it. What I know for a fact is that these things generally don't happen if there's leadership buy-in. We had a real live situation at Twitter where we had a burnout epidemic about four or five years ago now they were deeply upset by the way that work was impacting them and they started quitting with no job to go to so we started doing a simple audit asking people why are you leaving what could have been done to keep you to stay and they said oh yeah there's emails all evening there's emails all weekend we can't look away from our phone because there'll be emails on there and they're often really important emails from senior people and i used to have people ping me on google chat going hey bruce you're around for a quick call no, I'm not. I'm two glasses of wine in at a barbecue. <laughs> I am not jumping on a call. And we made a resolution. We had like this leadership session where sort of the most senior people in the company were there. And we made this resolution. Okay, we're going to stop weekend emailing. And the guy who was like number two in the company was this extraordinary alpha overachiever. No one said no to this guy because he was always right and he was always successful. And one Saturday morning, he started emailing and someone piped up. I think we agreed we're not going to email at the weekend. And like, you know, he was a bit put out by it, but he agreed it and he bought into it. And that's one of the challenges, unless these things are sort of established as norms. And so if people just understand that the way things get done around here is that everyone's allowed to email all weekend, no problems. Then, of course, they're going to find that six months down the road, people are quitting with no job to go to. And so we needed to break that link of causality, really. And it was hard. Without leadership buying, it's hard. What's particularly on your mind that if you were shouting about it from the rooftops, you would pick as a topic that leaders 
or perhaps anyone at work should think about and pay attention to, and perhaps that would benefit them? Yeah, I'm obsessed with the way we talk about resilience. You know, I've just spent two years writing a book because I felt the word resilience is everywhere. It's all pervasive. And the really interesting thing about it is that because it's all pervasive and directly, let's not beat around the bush, it's a direct consequence of the way we're working. Those three extra hours a day, no surprise, all of a sudden, your team don't look resilient. Hang on, my carpet's not very fresh anymore. Maybe it's because you've got horses walking through your living room all day long. Let's try and identify cause and effect. But the interesting thing is because it's so pervasive and desirable, loads of research has sprung up to try and solve it. And a rogues gallery of firms have jumped in saying, here's how you solve resilience. The training is broadly based on sort of what I call a resilience orthodoxy of, of two or three big authors, big um, academics. And uh, when you look at its, how it's implemented, it doesn't work. It doesn't have any impact. You know, in some of the research, it says this has had zero effect. The U.S. Army spent a billion implementing this training. And one analyst said it had zero impact. However, paradoxically, when we look at that, we look at all of this resilience training that every school, I went through, I went through curriculum after curriculum of state school, private schools, looking for growth mindset, looking for resilience. Oh my God, it's everywhere. You struggle to find a place that doesn't have it. However, if we take a step back and we go, do we ever witness resilience in the wild? So this training doesn't work. And by God, of course we do. We've witnessed resilience everywhere. We've witnessed resilient people in the aftermath of natural disasters. I was just looking at something in Bangladesh today. I was looking, you know, the people in Ukraine, such dazzling, defiant strength. But here's what you find is that, and it's a really fundamental juxtaposition, resilience is a collective strength. It's not an individual strength. It's not that we don't have the switch to turn on our resilience. If you send someone on resilience training courses, quite often they'll embarrassedly say to a friend, colleague, partner, I don't feel any different. But when we witness it, it's when people feel supported, emboldened, strengthened. You know, did all of those Ukrainian men believe that they could go and take up arms and and transfer from their their day, their administrative day jobs and, and fight against a, an invading force. I'm pretty sure that they didn't. But all of a sudden, they're standing shoulder to shoulder with people of like minds. and like, we can do this. Resilience is a collective strength. And the unfortunate thing is, because we don't teach that, and because it's an inconvenience, it means that organizations don't think about how they can enable that. We don't necessarily set about trying to set school children up to understand that the more connected you are to people, the more supported you are. So that's it. You know, so I've just spent two and a half years writing a book on that. That's out in August. Yeah. Called Fortitude. So that's my big obsession right now. That's fantastic, Bruce. And actually a timely reminder that orthodoxies shouldn't be taken as some kind of truth that can't be challenged. Bruce, thank you so much for joining me for this conversation today. I'm grateful for the invitation and shout out to all the course participants. Thanks a lot, Bruce. If you enjoyed this manageable conversation, there are many other perspectives we offer our community of managers worldwide who coach and individuals from all walks of life who benefit from being coached. That's all from me. I'm Farley Thomas. Until next time.